I live my life in the spotlight. It's kind of true for obvious reasons. I mean, 35-ish weekends out of a year, I stand up here uh, on a thing that looks like a stage under really bright lights. And not only that, but I, I open my life to you. I share things about my family, ups and downs, real life struggles, just trying to, trying to show you at least one picture of what it looks like for someone to try to follow Jesus and to grapple with the teachings of God's truth and his word. But there are lots of other ways that this applies to my life. You know, this is not a small community here where we live, but sometimes it feels really small. There are times where I'll turn around after a, a gym class is over, a class at the gym, a fitness class, and I turn around and someone's at the back of the room doing this. <laughs> and my immediate thought is, oh, I hope I didn't do anything gross. But it's exercise. I mean, can you really blame, blame me? Or, or uh, this week, my car, which is pretty old, took a turn for the worse. And um, so I started looking at new cars. And I had not been test driving a car for more than five miles when I'd already been spotted by five different people who said, hey, I like your new truck. I'm like, it's not even mine yet. But how did you see me? It weirded me out. And so there are these moments where it's, where it's kind of jarring and I tell myself that I, I don't like it. There, there are plenty of weekends where I just, you know, I can't, just the idea of having to do this, it feels overwhelming and I, I wish I could do something a little um, more discreet or out of, the, out of the spotlight. At least that's what I tell myself. But if I look back over the pattern of my life, I, I read another story. I think back to that, that part in the school play that I didn't take because I wasn't offered the lead. Or I think about when I wanted to quit the team because I wasn't getting enough playing time. Or I think about all of those high school or college jobs that I quit because my contributions weren't being adequately appreciated by the management. See, as much as it makes me uncomfortable, um, it can be jarring, it can be awkward sometimes to live life in the spotlight. I think the reality is that I live wanting to be noticed. I want to be seen. I want to be appreciated. I want to be valued. And the truth is, that's the same with you. Even if you're someone who has stage fright and the idea of literal spotlight makes you nauseous, the truth is you also want to be noticed. You want to be seen. You, you want to be appreciated. You want to be valued, if not by a whole bunch of people, at least by one other person in your life. Now, if this idea of spotlight is, is too uncomfortable for you, let's talk about it in another way. Let's talk about honor. And when I talk about honor, I'm not talking about, you know, the, the honor of being an honorable person who has integrity or uprightness or morality or, or that kind of code of conduct kind of honor. I'm talking about this other kind of honor. I'm talking about being noticed or seen or appreciated or valued or esteemed or treated with glory or prestige or respect. I think deep down we all want that. I think we all need that. But sometimes it can take us to pretty unhealthy places. You know, the ancient world, the world in which Jesus lived, was a culture that was obsessed with honor, especially of the second type. Um, these honor cultures 
where, um, where your value as a person wasn't, wasn't anything that you could own or control. It was all about what others bestowed on you. And by others, I mean society or institutions. And specifically in Jesus's day, those who really had the power to control who was given honor and who, who, who wasn't given honor was the religious establishment. The other side of these honor cultures, of course, is that um, not only did they control the spotlight and who got privilege and glory and, and, uh, and respect, but, but, but shame is the other side of that. That um, if you can't control who you're going to put the spotlight on, what you can do is leverage shame. And shame is not feeling bad about something that you've done. That's what we call guilt. But shame is feeling that you are bad for something that you've done. It's, it's a statement of worth or value. And so in these honor cultures, shame becomes a powerful weapon where you can beat people back out of the spotlight, out of the focal point by putting them in the shadows, by humiliating them. And, and that's kind of the way these cultures worked for a long time. In fact, there are lots of cultures today in our world that still work this way that are very driven by honor and shame because those are powerful forms of currency. If you control who, who gets the spotlight, you control quite a lot. If you can control whether or not people belong in the light or the shadows, and if you can drive them back to the shadows, you, man, you, you can control a lot. In fact, some people actually mistake that for sway. But in the days that um, Jesus lived, uh, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, some people we're going to see um, more about here in a minute, uh, they, they loved the honor game. And they were obsessed with who was getting honor, who was getting noticed, who was in the spotlight, and, and they played the game hard. But Jesus, on the other hand, came into this world as a religious leader, as a religious teacher, and he refused to play the honor-shame game. He, he actually taught people how to subvert the whole system. Uh, one time, there was a, a moment where um, he was talking about how people choose seats at banquets. So in those days, banquets were held, and it wasn't like today where you get a reserved seat with a place card, and someone's already decided where you sit. In those days, it was, it was more of a free-for-all, but far from being free seating in a banquet, everyone kind of knew their place, sort of like the middle school cafeteria. I mean, how many futures have been made and destroyed in just sitting in the wrong place in middle school, right? Right or wrong place. And that's kind of how it was. I mean, th- there was no assigned seat, but everyone kind of knew where they belonged. And, and the people who were the, the esteemed, honorable people of society, the people who, you know, were, were, were top-tier, A-list people, they knew who they were. And so they'd walk into a banquet and they'd take the best seats and no one was going to say anything. Of course, they deserved the best seats. And, and then the people who barely got in, the dishonorable people, the, the, you know, the shameful people, the rejects, the misfits, they took seats way at the back. They were just glad to be there. But, but there was this tier of people kind of in the middle and you could gamble, you could try to roll the dice and, and go for some upward mobility and, and, and picking your seat. You could try to pick a seat that was maybe a little bit better than what you might deserve and you could see if you could get away with it. And so it was this whole game people played just figuring out where to sit at a banquet. Not that we would do anything like that, right? But Jesus, he, he observes this and, and, he, and he teaches one day about this and he says, you know what? When you go into a banquet, don't even play the game. He says, just go sit at the back of the room. Sit at the back of the banquet hall. 
Because at least then, you know, you'll spare yourself any shame or embarrassment. You don't give people a, a tool to clobber you with. Um, if, if you sit in the wrong seat, no one's going to come along and say, out of my seat, nerd, you know, like they do in middle school. It's not going to happen to you. And you won't be humiliated or embarrassed. Just, just opt out. But Jesus says, but you know what can happen if you choose a seat at the back, if you just don't play the game? It could happen that the master of the banquet comes in and he sees you sitting in the back and says, wait a minute, friend, what are you doing back there? And, and goes and in front of everybody elevates your position and moves you up to the front of the banquet in front of everyone. And I don't know about you, but I like that teaching of Jesus. It's kind of subversive. It's, it's kind of rebellious. It's, it's clever. I think it's good advice. But Jesus not only taught this way, he actually went a step further, and this is how he lived. Jesus went around in society, and he didn't go hang out with all of the people of honor and glory and all the respectable places. He went to the so-called back of the banquet hall to where the misfits and the outcasts hung out, and, and he not only spent time with those people, but he had a way in, in how he treated them of, of grabbing them by the hand and bringing them into the front of the, of the banquet hall, into the front of society, of treating them, people who had been dishonored in society, treating them as if they were people of honor. And the religious leaders hated it. He's messing with their game. He's messing with the system. This was a system that they had control of. It's how they controlled people. It's how they kept their power. And and they hated Jesus for it. Not only that, what just irritated them about this is that Jesus, in doing this, was acting like he was the master of the banquet. And then one day, when, when his own very uh, humiliating, dishonorable death was only days away. Jesus finds himself at a dinner, at a banquet, and he does something that is, I I believe, just so remarkable. I want to look at it with you today. It's from Mark chapter 14. So if you're here in the room, page 1019 in the Bibles ahead of you, the words will be up here on the screen. It says, now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. Now, um, we're coming up to Holy Week and Easter, and that's kind of the time of year that we're talking about. So we're very close, again, very close to Jesus's betrayal, suffering, and death. So these uh, festivals were coming up, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, those who controlled the spotlight, who played the honor-shame game in those days, um, they were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, where the people may riot. So you can see right here how they play the game. They're going to do something very dishonorable. They're going to get a guy killed falsely. But they're not going to let anyone see them doing it because that would be dishonorable. That would, you know, like they don't do this stuff. So they're scheming behind the scenes, meanwhile pretending to be just these, these upright guys, but these, uh, you know, these guys in, in uh, the top position of society. And meanwhile, it says, Jesus was kind of in a suburb of Jerusalem, the capital, out in this place called Bethany. Uh, Jesus was in Bethany. He was reclining at the table at at a dinner, at a banquet, in the home of Simon the leper. And while he was there, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, a vial of perfume made of pure nard, really fancy stuff. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Now, now, right here, this practice is what the ancients, and it was regular practice in Jesus' world, it was called anointing. And anointing was usually done not with expensive perfume, but with any kind of oil. And it was done for a number of cultural reasons. It was, it was a regular practice, but it had different 
um, applications. So anointing was used in fasting and especially when you were leaving fasting or if you didn't want people to know you were fasting. Um, It was used in conjunction with healing. In fact, in the book of James, it encourages even us to, uh, when when we're sick, if we want healing, to go to the elders, to ask for prayer. Um, to use oil for anointing, and it says you may be healed. And so that's a a part of a biblical practice. Uh, Anointing was used when you want to honor a guest. Usually when they walk into your house or into the the party, you offer them water for washing so they can clean up, oil to to freshen up so that they look like they're in a festive place, just a a nice courtesy to give at a fancy party for a guest of honor. Um, When anointing was used when you want to install someone into office, like a priest or a king, King David, if you know him, Um, other famous priests throughout the, uh, or prophets throughout the Old Testament were placed into office, and when, they were do, when, they, when that happened, there was uh, oil applied to their head as a sign of God's favor or as a mark of the indwelling of God's spirit. And then finally, um, anointing was used when you were preparing a dead body for burial. Instead of embalming, like the Egyptians might have practiced, um, the Hebrew people just uh, dressed the outside of a body. So yeah, one of these kids is not like the other one. This one's kind of creepy, but the rest of them are just sort of normal. So uh, there are lots of reasons you would anoint someone, but what's unclear at this moment is why this woman in this moment is anointing Jesus. It, it doesn't seem to make sense. It's in the middle of the banquet. No one's really clear on what she's doing. Her action is very confusing. And not only that, but she's a woman. And in this culture, women are back of the banquet hall kind of people. And so the idea that she's making herself, putting herself on display, uh, you know, coming to the main part, like, that's just, that's not right. That's inappropriate. It's bothersome. Look at how the rest of the guests respond. It says, some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. You know people like this, right? They're they're just waiting for you to do something wrong so that they can pounce on you. And and it's not enough that they're doing this privately amongst themselves, but but they they just lay into the woman in front of everyone. Again, that honor, shame thing, the carrot stick thing that is so prevalent that in so many cultures that, that we use to control people. But they're furious at this woman's action. Why? Because she's a woman, just talked about that. But also because they, they say this is wasteful, a year's wages spent on this perfume. This is not hyperbole, by the way. This would have been a year's wages for a day laborer. So um, may, maybe even in our modern minds, we can think of this is tens of thousands of dollars, maybe on the lower $20,000, $30,000 worth of perfume. It's an extraordinary amount of money. And this action seems very wasteful just to, to dump that on Jesus in this moment. That seems way too extravagant, way too wasteful. Now, now if you struggle with this, this idea, like it sounds even like it could be a fairy tale or fictional at this moment. Let me just remind you that right now you could fly to Las Vegas and at a restaurant called Fleur 5000, you could buy this $5,000 burger. I'm not making this up. Um, There's a bottle of champagne that comes with it, which adds some of the expense, but there's like truffles and all kinds of stuff on this and, uh, you know, fancy beef. Uh, Do you know for $14,000 at, in Sri Lanka, $14,000, you can have this dessert. It's called the Fortress Resort and Spa. 
And you can see right here, there's some jewel stones as a part of this dessert. So a $14,000 dessert. Or for a cool $57 million, you can take a ride on a SpaceX rocket. Um, and I hear the price is falling. I mean, pretty soon it'll be accessible at like $10 million, you know, for a ride to space. It'll be, it'll be pretty great. Right? So, so we, we're, we're not unfamiliar with this idea of lavish expenses that are gone in a minute. But, but for this woman, in this time, this seems incredibly incredibly wasteful. Um, for starters, it's, it's a year's worth of wages. But also, you know, this is not a rich community. This is a poor community. So it seems like a, like a, like a way of showing off. I mean, people are starving in this community. And, and here she is pouring out this perfume on Jesus. It seems inappropriate. And, and these are religious people. And, and you, we all know how religious piety makes us do weird things around money. Like we love money, but we act like we don't. Or we have money, we act like we don't. And there's all this weird game we play about, about money. And, and this is just not prudent, It's not very future-minded. Now, we don't know if this woman was wealthy. Chances are that she wasn't. It it could be that she cashed in everything she had to buy this vial of perfume. Or it could have been that this vial of perfume was was given to her as an inheritance from her parents who were gone. This could have been her dowry. This could have been her life savings, her nest egg. And so in a moment, in a moment's rash action, she, she takes this thing of great value. She dumps it on the head of Jesus and it's gone. I mean, no, no t-shirt, no photograph, no souvenir keychain. In a moment, it's wasted. And now this woman presumably is going to have to live on the kindness of someone else, you know, live on the dole. She's not going to be able to take care of herself. Like, this is, this is foolishness. Now, now, what makes this worse is that if this woman had done the same thing for a literal king in a palace, people might have looked at her and said, hey, you know what? <laughs> Got to respect it. That's, that's, a, that's a gamble, but m- maybe it'll pay off for you because we all know that you can gift, you can flatter, you can bribe your way to the top, right? Or at least we now know that you can gift your way into UCLA or USC. Right? <laughs> we know that. And so if this woman would have done this kind of action to a king, it might have paid off for her. And again, we've seen this. Lavish gifts, lavish acts of, of, of you know, affection shown to someone in power often means that the person who gave the gift, they, they get something in return. But, but there is no way. This is what's so imprudent about this. There is no way that this broke carpenter from Nazareth is ever going to be able to repay this woman for such an extravagant honor. And so all of the guests at the banquet, or at least the ones who are talking, I mean, rebuking her, they're looking at her and they're just going, you foolish woman. First of all, what are you, what are you doing even letting yourself be seen? But, but come on, you just don't understand how this works. You don't get it. But I think she's actually maybe one of the only people in that whole banquet who does get it. See, it seems to me that she's been listening because Jesus has been speaking open, openly for, for weeks now about how his time is coming, how he's going to go away, he's going to be taken, he's going to be given into the hands of the chief priests and the teachers of the law, these, these, you know, these controllers of society, and, and they're going to they're treat him shamefully and they're going to put him to death. And, and he's been saying this stuff openly to his followers and no one seems to be listening except this woman. And she realizes that his time is coming 
And so she does what she can. She seizes the moment. She takes something that is precious to her and she, in front of everybody, lets Jesus know how much he matters to her. And you know what? She is not sorry that she does this in front of everyone. She is not sorry to pour on him an honor that only a few kings in history ever would have received. She is not sorry to pour out her life savings on him. She is not sorry to create a spectacle or to, or to, to experience their harsh rebuke. She knew what she was getting into. She is not sorry to let Jesus know in the front of everybody that he matters while there's still time. And as powerful as this whole thing is, this, this woman's action and, and her intentionality and just how deliberate and focused she is, as powerful as this honor is that she gives to Jesus, and I mean, no one, right? I mean, no one in his time honored him in this way. And in fact, those of us today sitting here today, I mean, I, I'm challenged by this idea that I would make an offering worth of a year's worth of wages at one time to God. I mean, that, that challenges me even today. And yet what I find really powerful, it's not just what she did, it's how Jesus responds. I want you to look at this. Jesus says, they're rebuking her, they're shaming her, they're doing what they do. And Jesus says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done not, not a foolish thing, not a wasteful thing. She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll have with you always, and, and you can help them anytime you want. In fact, you should, but you will not always have me. She did what she could and he gives some insight here. She poured perfume on my body beforehand. Usually it happens at death, but she did it beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory, in honor of her. And don't miss this. This promise of Jesus being fulfilled right now. I mean, think about how crazy this is. Thousands of years later, thousands of miles away, here we are, and we're talking about this woman. You know, in life, there are a few things that you can do that will live beyond you even a generation or two. The idea that we could do something that would be remembered for even a little while is, is more than most of us can hope for. And the idea that this, 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 in Mark, unnamed woman, a back of the room kind, back of the banquet hall kind of person, a woman of no status, a woman not of great wealth, that, that this honor she put on Jesus, this, this act of love and devotion that she paid to Jesus, that it is now being repaid. And Jesus says, every time my gospel is preached, people will, people will know this woman. It's just extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, you think about how many times, how many times groups of people all over the world, all over the world throughout time have gathered around the story and, and we have remembered and honored this woman for her act of worship. And what I find just as extraordinary is of her extravagant worship is, is what Jesus is essentially doing again is he's going to the back of the banquet hall and he's grabbing her hand in front of everybody and he's putting her in a place of honor, not just in front of that audience, but still in front of us today as if he's the master of that banquet and every banquet forever after. 
See, here's the thing. I'm making a promise to you today that if, that if, instead of making life about your own honor and finding honor for yourself, instead of fighting for the spotlight in your life, instead of choosing the best seats of honor in a banquet so that everyone will think well of you, instead of playing the honor and shame game, instead of doing that, if instead, if you turn your attention to those who are around you and you find a way to to honor those in your life, the people who are around you every day, if, if you turn the spotlight on them instead, because we all carry one around with us, we, we, we can do this at any time. If you choose to honor others, if you choose to praise others, encourage others, to celebrate others, if you do that, then here's what will happen. You'll see people blossom around you and not wither. You will find more honor than you can handle and you will unlock true sway. See, it's true that if you live your life as a self-promoter, that, that it, it'll work. People will buy what you're selling. And if you're selling yourself, most of the time it works. Or if you're a person who, who, who forces your way into the spotlight, you'll probably find it. And you know what? They'll keep the spotlight on you as long as you demand it. But the moment you stop demanding it or, or you lose power control, they're going to put the spotlight on someone else. You're, you're going to lose it. No one's going to keep clapping for you once you take your hand off their throats if you live your life that way. But if you live your life instead... Choosing, looking around in the banquet halls of life for, for, for people who are not getting any honor but, but who need it. And if you choose to honor them, then, then here's what will happen. You'll see people blossom, not wither. Honor and shame, they're powerful currency. They, they, have, they can control people. That's how societies run. Some of you, this is how you parent. But I'll tell you what will happen if you use honor and shame to control people. You won't see them blossom. You won't see them grow. You'll see them wither. If instead you choose to honor, you'll watch people blossom. You will find, if you do this, more honor than you can handle. If you make your own honor the the goal, you'll find it, but it'll go away. If you do this, it just has a way of coming back around to you, and you'll have more honor than you ever need. But, But man, if you do this, you will unlock true sway. I'm not talking about control over people, but I'm talking about influence. Just like Jesus And how do I know? Because I've experienced this. I told you that um, even though I I don't always love life in the spotlight, there's something about me that loves it. And and so I I think back to moments when I was doing group work in school. Anyone like group work? It's terrible, group work. Uh, Because group work, my experience with that is you have a great idea. There's always someone doing most of the work. The whole group gets credit. And I just couldn't handle that, you know? So... When, uh, when the group was getting credit, I, I've always found ways to let the teacher know while the group did something, all the great ideas were mine. <laughs> and the same thing in the workplace, you know, the team gets credit and, and I, I, mean, I just couldn't handle that. I just felt like that's not fair. That's not right. And I would always find ways to make sure that the boss or whoever else knew that the really, the really great idea or their hard work really, really came from me. And, and then it just got even weirder. Like other people would do good things and they would get praise or honor and it had nothing to do with me. I couldn't even claim credit for it, but I'd start to feel threatened by the honor they were receiving. And so I'd find ways to diminish it or undermine it or attack it. Because I thought if they were getting honor, it'd be to my detriment. And that's kind of how I lived my life for a really, really long time, way too long. And then uh, I came here and I began working with Steve Hauer. 
Now, if you don't know Steve Howard, this man uh, was a pastor on our staff for almost 30 years. He's still pastor emeritus. He was actually here last week teaching. And uh, he was senior pastor here for 27 years. We worked together for nine years. And when, when I came here, I discovered that, that Steve Howard, he's many things, but one of the things that uh, Steve Howard loves to do is he loves to clap. Have you noticed this? It's like a problem for him. Uh, the guy is a one-man live studio audience. Uh, he just, just claps all the time. And so you'll be with Steve in a worship service, and he'll start clapping during a random moment in the song, or you'll be in a staff meeting. He'll do the same. You'll be at a dinner or during a speech, and he just starts clapping and Sometimes a little bit like alarming, but, but that's what he does. And, and, and one of the things that I learned when I came here is that above all, Steve loves to clap for people. And I'd never experienced that out of a leader in the same way before. I, mean, I, wor- I worked with good leaders, but I'd never experienced that out of a leader, someone who was so willing to applaud. You know, I, most leaders that I worked with, they always hold a little bit back and they didn't want to give you too much and they were trying to protect their own honor. And uh, they also didn't want to, you know, give you too much because then you might get too big for your bridge. You know, there was that game that they played and, and it just seemed normal to me. That's the game I was playing. And, and yet I came here and, and Steve, he, he just, he would, like a, he would like applaud for me. Sometimes literally. And it was, it was alarming at first. It was a little embarrassing. And yet what I, what I found was it didn't make me big headed, but I found I started, to, I started to blossom rather than wither. And I started to believe that maybe I could do the things that he was praising me for. Maybe I could grow into all of those things. Maybe I could become all the things he believed I could be. And, and, and it just started to, to change me. And, and then I noticed that Steve wasn't only applauding for me, but he was applauding for lots of people. And, and he was even applauding for some people who I really don't think deserved to be applauded. And that bothered me. And here's what I discovered, that in all of those years of applauding for people, as Steve did that, I discovered that we never went on like a, like a, we never had to ration out honor. We never did do honor rations. Like we didn't run out of honor. It wasn't like, well, if you give it to that guy, then I'm not going to have any left for me. And so I should feel threatened. There was always more than enough to go around. And that was true for Steve. I mean, he'll tell you that some pastors demand honor. He said, you know, that wasn't a thing that he, uh, he did, but he says still to this day that because he didn't demand honor, because he chose to honor others, he had more honor than he knew what to deal with. It was, it was do with. It was kind of embarrassing for him sometimes how well he was honored. And you know what else I discovered watching this man just, just clap for people? Uh, I discovered that he probably more than anyone else is a man of sway. I mean, he's had more influence on me than, I don't know if I would say anyone, but it's got to be close. And if you know Steve, he's the kind of guy where it just feels like sometimes when he walks by you, it's like you're being passed by a truck on the highway. You just kind of feel his sway. And there are lots of reasons for that. I mean, he's, a, he's an anointed man and the spirit of God rests on him. But part of it is he's a man who has chosen. And I don't know when he made that decision, but I've experienced it. He's a man who has made a choice and he kept making the choice to honor others. And here's what I want you to know. That's not just a Steve Howard thing. This is the way of Jesus. If you're someone who, who sometimes gets quiet and you, uh, you ask God the question, I've done this in my life, God, Father, what, what do you think of me? 
When you, when you see me, what do you, what do you, what do you see? What do you have to say to me? And if you've ever done this and, and if you've gotten quiet and you've really strained your ear to try to listen to see what God would say, and if, if you've heard things that sound like this, if you've heard, try harder. It's not enough. How could you? I'm so disappointed in you. If that's what you're hearing, you're listening to the wrong voice. Because here's what I know. We see it in Mark 14. That if you strain your ear and you get quiet and you say, God, Father, what do you think of me? When you look at me, what do you see? Do you have a word for me? And if you get quiet, do you know what you'll hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, my son, my daughter. I love you. I am passionate about you. In fact, I I want to take you from the place of dishonor that you're living And and I want to move you to a place of eternal honor at my side. That's why I sent my son so that he could take all of your dishonor, all of your shame, and so that you could sit in a place of honor eternally. I I want to take you from the back of the room. I want to lead you up into the front of the room because, by the way, I am the master of all the banquets. And I'm pleased with you, and I love you, and I see you, and I know you, and I want you to know me, and and I'm proud of you. Well done. Well done. see, to choose to honor others, that is the way of our God. That is the way of Jesus. You cannot read the Gospels and come to any other conclusion. And it's not just what he did for this woman, although he did, and we're still telling her story, and it blows my mind, but it's what he did for thousands of people while he walked the earth, and it's what he's still doing for you. And that's what, it's it's not the honor-shame game. That's what makes our God a God of such incredible sway. And I'm telling you today, if you make the decision and you keep making the decision every day that you are going to live your life choosing to honor others, looking for people to applaud, the same can be true for you. We pray, Father in heaven, thank you Thank you for answering us when we dare to ask you that really uh, scary, vulnerable question. What do you think of me? Thank you for answering the way you do. Father, I know that in my life and our lives, there is nothing that is hidden from you. You see it all. You are not deceived. And yet when you look at me, And when you speak a word over me, it's a word of honor, of blessing, of mercy and grace, of uh, identity and and belonging. And that's, that's what you speak. That's what you choose to see. That's what you call out. God in heaven, I thank you that you 
own all glory and honor. It is squarely yours. And yet you don't live your life clapping for yourself. Instead, you, you choose to honor us with life, with all the things that we have that are far beyond our deserving choose to honor us with relationship and that you have, that, that, that Jesus, our master, right now, according to your word, is preparing a place for us, a place of honor around your banquet table. Father, I'm, I'm so by the way you choose to be with us. And my request for us, for me, for us, is so simple today, and and yet it's powerful and transforming, and and yet I ask that you'd make it true, and I, I pray for your Holy Spirit to fall on all of us today, that it might be true. Father, I ask that you would help us make the choice to honor others, that we might see people blossom, not wither, that that we might unlock incredible sway, that we might find even the honor that we're looking for, but without clamoring for it, that you might just bring it around for the glory of your name. Amen.